This is the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast brought to you by Self-Care for Teachers, helping you prioritize your health, happiness and well-being so that you can thrive in the classroom and in life. I'm your host, Ellen Ronalds Keane, reminding you that you're a person first and a teacher second and you are allowed to look after you. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast. In this episode, I am sharing with you a follow-up chat, a repeat guest. So I'm talking to Beck, who is a teacher you may remember from episode three, from the very first season of the podcast. So way back in the beginning of 2017, I uh, spoke to Beck about her journey of finding more personal well-being as a teacher and treating herself like a person first and a teacher second. And at the end of 2019, we caught up with a bit of an update. And obviously, this year didn't quite go to plan. So the episode didn't end up going into season six as I planned. So there will obviously need to be further updates uh, because in this episode, Beck shares her story or how her journey progressed and how things changed and how the well-being and and health habits had to shift and tweak after she became a mum. And she is now a mum to two little boys. So... At the time we recorded this, she was just about to go off on her second lot of maternity leave and obviously now she has finished that second lot of maternity leave and she's now in a phase of being, you know, a working mum to two little kids. And so we will one day definitely get back back on the podcast to give us an update, but it's a really fantastic conversation and we talk about, so she shares really candidly some of her challenges through that time and and also some really interesting, I guess, aha moments for her around realizing that just because you know like life changes and then you have to reassess what was working for you before maybe stops working for you in a new phase of life and I think the more of us as teachers can be aware of that just for ourselves so that we're not beating ourselves up because we felt like we had it all figured out in our first year or we had it all figured out last year and then you know pandemic happened or some life thing happened and now we've got to kind of feel like we're going back to the drawing board again that's normal. It's actually a two steps forward, one step back process. Well-being is not static and resilience is not static. It is not a once done thing. It's an ongoing kind of a hygiene practices. And it's also always going to be two steps forward, one step back because, because life happens and because we try things and they don't work for us, even things that used to work for us in a different phase of life. But I also want us to know this so that we're not comparing ourselves to the people you know, around us who are maybe in a different phase of life or have different preferences, different strengths, different advantages in some way or disadvantages in other ways. You know, so so often I talk to teachers and they're either in their early career and they're comparing themselves to somebody who's, you know, 20 years in, who's really got their teaching practice like down and they're comparing themselves to, oh, that, you know, that colleague of mine who is a really experienced teacher just seems to have everything figured out and I'm not good enough in comparison Or the flip side is that people, you know, and many of my clients are really experienced teachers, they're comparing themselves to early career teachers who are in a different phase of life, who maybe don't have dependents, they don't have, you know, maybe some of the other health challenges that can just crop up over the years, particularly as bodies go through stuff and, and, you know, they're comparing themselves to people in a different phase or season of life. And I just want us to kind of start to recognize when we're doing that and to be able to catch ourselves and go, huh, okay, good for that person that they're achieving X, Y, Z, or they seem to have these habits down. 
that doesn't seem to work for me at this stage of life or because I just don't like that thing. I don't like yoga, so I'm never going to do it or what, well, you know, whatever it is for you. Stop comparing. Stop the comparisonitis because it is a huge well-being trap that we all fall into. And I think Instagram makes it worse because, you know, we're just seeing these perfectly put together rainbow feeds of, you know, classrooms that look amazingly clean and we're never seeing when they're not clean because nobody posts that photo, you know. So let's just stop the comparing. Stop comparing to the highlight reels of others that we're seeing because we never really know what's going on behind the scenes unless someone, you know, feels like they want to share that with us. But also let's stop comparing to people in different seasons of life and let's stop comparing ourselves to our former selves when we were in a different season of life where things maybe went differently, things worked out differently for us. Maybe certain habits and practices were easier to put into place. You know, Beck and I have this really great conversation around how before she had babies, she had a certain kind of work style, a certain way she liked to work. Now, obviously, the, you know, obviously just the reality is different. There's childcare responsibilities that weren't there before, but also her preferences have changed now as well. So let's just keep that in mind that this is not static. Health and well-being pretty much Life is not a static thing. Change is the only constant and really giving ourselves the freedom and flexibility to continue to learn and grow and shift and tweak and change and to know that it's always going to be two steps forward, one step back and that that is normal. There's nothing wrong with you if that's what's going on for you. That's really, really powerful. So I really hope you enjoy Beck's story. And just before we get to Beck's story, I do want to also let you know about a couple of things coming up. So I have been having a lot of conversations recently with well-being champions, the people who are the well-being person in their school. And one of the common things that is being mentioned to me over and over is that often the situation is that you've you've taken on this well-being role at your school that might be voluntary or maybe there's a few of you, there's a little committee, and it is pretty much expected now that you're going to be delivering on some well-being strategy or well-being activities in the staff meeting or whatever, but you're kind of you know, you obviously also are still working. Uh, so you still have your normal role description and duties. You haven't been given any extra time to work on this well-being role, but also you're actually wanting to connect with other people who may be in a similar boat. So you're not reinventing the wheel and you can share resources and you can support each other. So I am putting together a well-being champion meetup. And the first one is going to be in mid-November. So I'm going to run two different times because I know we have people in different time zones. So we're going to do 4pm Queensland time on Wednesday the 18th of November and 10am Queensland time on Saturday the 21st of November. So I'll put a link in the description. You can also go to selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash wellbeing champion. And yeah, I would love to see you at the wellbeing champions meetup so that we can get some brainstorming happening. We can share resources and you can connect to people in other schools because I'm hearing a lot that you maybe are the only person in your school or there's only you and two other people in your school and you really want to connect to find out how other schools are doing it. You want to share the things that have worked really well for you and maybe share resources as well and support each other through this process because I think this is the this is a trend that I'm seeing. I'm going to talk more about that in a future episode, but this is a real trend that I'm seeing where I think it's fantastic that we are now having these well-being champions on the school who are looking after their colleagues or encouraging their colleagues to look after themselves and making sure that staff well-being is on the agenda at their school, but you know, you don't have to do that alone. So come along to this well-being champions meetup. I would love it's virtual, obviously everything I do is virtual, so it's um it'll be on Zoom. The link will be below and also it is selfcareforteachers.com.au slash wellbeingchampion. 
Love to see you there. And in the meantime, enjoy Beck's updated story. Hi, Beck. Thanks for coming back on the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to check back in with you because for listeners, Beck is a return guest. Rebecca was actually my very, very first interview, episode three of season one of the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast way back in 2017. Wow. I know. (laughs) I know. And uh, so... Life looks very different for you since then. There's been lots and lots of changes as happens with people's lives over, you know, three-year periods. And um, at the time when we last spoke, you had really kind of got into a bit of a groove with making sure you were going to the gym regularly. You know, you were, I think at the time you would have been about maybe eight years into your teaching career, maybe 10, I'm not sure. No, it was eight. Yep. Eight. And you had definitely had some challenges in the early stages with just feeling like you, you know, were putting everything over and above, teaching came first over and above everything else in life. You were also in your, you know, early 20s, partying a lot as we do. And the biggest takeaway I remember getting from that conversation was that your then partner, now husband, Adam, had called you on the fact that, hey, you can't just keep wearing busy as a badge of honor. Like you have to, you have to change that mindset. So you'd kind of come through that and you were really in a good phase with your healthy habits, with your gym going and eating well, and just being really disciplined about some of those, just some of those basic things that help with the energy day to day. And also the shift in mindset away from having, you know, wearing busy as a badge of honor. So I think I'll let you explain where you're at now uh, because there's been loads and loads of changes in your life since then. And of course, as things change, so do our habits and so do our, you know, needs. So tell us where you're at now. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's really funny. Some things have changed and some things haven't. I still have a partner who calls me on bad habits or um, bad cycles that I get myself into, which is awesome. And I've been, um, I've had the probably shouldn't say pleasure of being able to do that for him too because he's been doing his further studies, doing his MBA. So he's been, yeah, busy would have been a really easy badge for him himself to wear, but he's luckily got me to hold him accountable. So I guess what let's start with what hasn't changed. I think that focus towards like the self-care of the, of the actual body health-wise hasn't changed and I, I really think that that I still go back to that being the base of well-being. You like it makes sense, doesn't it? It's not really rocket science. It's sleep, eating well, and exercising. So, so that that hasn't changed at all for me. Even after the birth of my first baby, that was something that I knew when I when I had a rough time, you know, getting into motherhood and um, and I guess balancing who I was with this new role in my life, really big role of being a mother, um, I knew that that was something that I needed to get back into ASAP as soon as I was physically able to because that for me is my, I guess, one of my go-to self-care rituals that really works for me. And I know it works for a lot of people, but I think it's it, it has to be something that, for me, I prioritize. Otherwise, it's like nothing else can kind of work as well. Mm, I think it's important just to realize, how, like, because we all do have different 
I mean, it is a coping mechanism and it's also a, a helpful, you know, maintenance, but I think we all need to, it's helpful to know which one of those practices is like the, oh my goodness, that one is the one that I must prioritize or those couple are the ones I must prioritize. Otherwise everything else falls apart. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's good to know that. Yeah. More, more than what, what I'm eating, I, I try not to focus too heavily or unhealthily on what I'm eating. I'm you know, I'm, I like to think I eat relatively healthy, but healthily, but you know, it comes and goes in waves like everyone else. But um, exercise, I suppose, not for the aesthetic, but more for the mental side of things is something that for me, when I talked to you last, I think it had just clicked. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think I'd really had that in the forefront of my mind before that. I certainly didn't as a younger teacher I did not prioritize it at all. And busy was that, was the badge of honor, but it was also the excuse as to why I wouldn't exercise regularly. <laughs> Whereas now it sounds like you, because it's clicked and you've been through some phases in life where it's become increasingly obvious that it's important, you really don't let anything be the excuse. It be, that becomes the non-negotiable. That's ex- exactly it. So, yep. So I'd say that's the number one non-negotiable for me. What I think's changed probably is an added importance on on sleep and what healthy sleep habits are for me. So I, I gave birth to my um, my first baby, Thomas, in 2018 in May. So not that not that long ago. No. Well, so by the time I should just say we're recording this in December of 2019, and by the time this goes to air, you know, early 2020, there'll be another baby. And uh, so things will change again. We know that's going to be another change. But so at the moment you have one, one little boy and you're pregnant, but carry on. Yes. So, so, um, so it's, it's all happening and it's, and it's happening for the second time, which gives me that great benefit of hindsight and what I, I think I'm going to make sure I prioritize just to make sure I get through it. You know, it won't be unscathed, but it'll be, it'll be hopefully slightly, <laughs> slightly easier. But no, what, what I've come to realize is that when you look at your well-being and you aren't possibly feeling well, people, they say that people have these signs or symptoms that are unique to each person that kind of come together that make you maybe not as well as you could be. And for me, what the biggest one is sleep. And, you know, that's not, a new thing for anyone and it's not something that it's just me I know but um I think that where I can work on that I do because I think it's it's vital to my health well-being and happiness so that's the thing that I guess I have really been focusing on since the birth of Thomas and and it's an extra challenge when there's a baby in the house <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a huge challenge and it's not always something that you can control when you have another little person in your life that, you know, isn't on a, an easy sleep schedule that works for you and allows you to get enough. But there are ways to work around it. And if you, if you are lucky enough to have a partner in your journey through motherhood, there's opportunity to lean on them to ensure that you kind of have a bit of a balance with your sleep and, and that there's ways of getting around it. And I think that Maybe, maybe mothers, you know, listening would be, would be like, yeah, easier said than done. But I guess where you can control what you can control, you've just got to, you've got to do it. If you've realized that that's what, that's what's needed to be able to function in your, in your day-to-day life, I suppose. 
Well, so let's come back to the habits in a minute because I totally agree with you that exercise and sleep for anyone, especially for uh, new parents, absolutely crucial. They're the keystone habits. But let's talk about your journey into motherhood. So it was not as easy as it is for some people. And also shortly before uh, becoming a parent, you also became head of department at your school. Is that right? Yeah, so that's right. I, I had spent a bit of time in the position and um, and was applying in the in the application process for the substantive position only a week and a half, I think, before Thomas was born. So um so I did the interview, quite heavily pregnant, and um, luckily won, or luckily or you know, by whatever means um, won the position, um, which was a real milestone for me in my career, just before Thomas was born. And with a kind of a smaller than usual pelvis and a, a cesarean that needed to happen. I think it was a total of five days that I had off between work and having the baby, which looking back on now was, yeah, pretty hectic. Um, it did not give me time to process, if you can process what's going to, what you're up against. Um, it didn't give me time to think about it really. It was just work was done and then baby was here. Mm. And not only was work done, but work was suddenly new. New role is now confirmed, and then then work is done, and then baby is here. <laughs> that, well, that's right. And In the same week. No, exactly. And then that's not that's not saying that the the lead up to that was easy by any means at all. So it was it was working probably at my hardest, at my peak, feeling really good about it, feeling great. So I I was really pleased with myself and how I was managing stress and managing my own well being and managing the high, high demand of what it takes to kind of yeah win a position that you you feel is right for you and that you're you know you're proving your worth I guess so it was it was like go 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 stop have a baby yeah <laughs> and um and yeah that that hit me really hard definitely identity wise when Thomas came along I'd always just assumed that motherhood would come easily to me I don't think I ever vocalize that to anyone but that was certainly the narrative that I was telling myself my whole life up until having my baby and when feeding wasn't easing easy when when sleep deprivation really got to me and then marrying this idea of oh, I'm I'm at home now with a little human that I'm absolutely in love with but terrified of accidentally killing um <laughs> that all kind of yeah, it brought me down into a place that I'd, I'd never experienced before. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Well, you know, just that um, I think when you have an idea of, you know, it's expectations, you know, versus reality, right? So I think a lot of that was self kind of fulfilling in a negative way. Like I'd, I'd kind of set myself up for a bit of a fall. But I will say that having come out of it and going into round two, feeling like I'm in a in a much better position to deal with with challenges that come along with the second child now. Mm, mm. And I know, well, thanks, thanks so much for sharing that, Beck, because I know that it's been a bit of a bumpy ride at times. But I also really wanted to get you on back on the podcast to share some of the ways that you did overcome some of those challenges and and also the interesting journey that you've had because you've always said, you know, I've known you a long time and you've always said that you really wanted to be a working mother um, and you said that your identity did take a hit and it was kind of an unexpected um, identity shift or trouble, I suppose, adopting the new identity of motherhood 
um, when Tommy was here in the world. And then you went back to work after six months and your partner Adam stayed home with Tom for six months, which I know obviously is not a, a possibility for everybody, but that was what was right for you guys at that time and what was available for you both as well. But tell us about that journey of, of that first six months and what you did to kind of right your ship, I suppose, in order to then be able to then become that working mum. Yeah, it, well, it, you know, it was, a re- it was a really interesting time because I'm, I'm very lucky to have someone who is quite highly emotionally intelligent that I live with, which is my husband, and he identified pretty quickly that possibly seeking some outside counsel or some, some support might be a good way forward for me. And it really was good reaching out to my GP and talking to someone neutral about, you know, how I was feeling and the thoughts inside my head that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't quite articulate to to anyone else really. And yeah, it was all around identity and who was I now and how was this little person going to work with who I was? Is that even possible? Yeah, so there were lots of kind of, I guess, questions in my mind about how it was all going to work. And then, you know, getting things right, like talking it through with someone, then trying to get, okay, well, exercise into the routine to try and get those endorphins going. And then slowly starting to embrace this idea of, I can be a really good mum, but I can also still do what I love to do was something that it was slow slow moving but something that we you know I guess we're still working through now if I really think about it because when we got to the six month mark um and it was time for me to go back to work and for Adam to stay home I remember there was definitely some guilt there around I guess wanting to go back to work (laughs) um and that was that was probably completely just in my head because I really didn't have anyone externally making me feel guilty. You know, we've had great support from parents and and siblings and, and the people in our lives and my husband's so willing to be there and it was amazing to watch him have that time with Thomas. But maybe it was a little bit of guilt to say, oh, wow, is this normal that I would want to be going back at the six-month mark? Well, there's so many messages in our society that, I mean, essentially, whichever choice you make as a mother, you, you, you're going to be dealing with a whole bunch of conditioning from society that says both choices are wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. And then, and then on the other side that I, you know, I often think about was, well, there are a lot of women in the world who don't have the luxury of having the choice. <laughs> and so I did have to think about that and say, well, you know, I've, I'm in a privileged position of being able to have stayed at home for six months with my baby without having to worry financially. And now my husband's having that same experience himself. So we're in a a position of incredible privilege as well. So I suppose there was that kind of side to it that I would remind myself of and go, well, you know, some people don't have the luxury of being able to stay at home for as long as I have as well. So so there there was a bit of guilt there. But then when it came to, you know, 
getting into work and then and then marrying the teaching lifestyle with parenting that was quite smooth sailing when Adam was at home. It's really nice to have a, <laughs> a stay-at-home partner who is, you know, taking care of the house while you're able to lean in and know that the second best person looking up who would be able to look after your baby is there at home other than yourself. So that was quite quite a wonderful time for me because I was really I was exercising, I was getting better sleep. Adam was doing a great job. Tommy was ha- is so happy. He's uh, he'd come really good with some of his feeding issues and his allergies. So we we really had a great time, but where it hit us probably the hardest was when Adam's leave ran up and all of a sudden we're two working parents full time and little one year olds going into daycare full time. So that was where I think the the second wave, so the first wave of, you know, that ch- those changes and that struggle was right when Tommy was born. And then the second wave of challenges was when, okay, it's the real world now. We're both working and how do we as a team tackle, yeah, work and then raising our child and, and the guilt with that was enormous, to be honest. So I guess what did we do? We just, I suppose there was lots of, lots of communication, but also I had to really reframe how I was thinking and feeling about my performance at work. That was a big one as well. Yeah, because you love your job, right? I know that you do. And, and, and I know that there are certainly teachers who are quite happy to take extended leave from teaching when they've got little babies at home and that's a wonderful choice too especially you know especially if it's what you want and you're able to do you know as you said if and you have the option to do the choice that's right for you but you love your job and have been on the leadership path for a while and so then that really combining that with the parenting so tell us about some of those strategies and and some of the changes that you made once the rubber hit the road and it was like all right real world now yeah, it's real, really, it's still a work in progress. I will, I will say that as a disclaimer. Definitely don't feel like, like um, I have the answers, but I, I did leave for this maternity leave this time feeling like I'd got it to a stage where I, I could really not just cope but feel like I was doing a good job. And that was my aim. And I, I suppose the rude shock of Adam going back to work and then us having to juggle the daycare drop-offs and all of those sorts of things. So you you have a new set of restrictions on your time that you are able to dedicate to work. Now, I'm, you know, we all know that teachers don't work <laughs> the 8.30 till 2.30 or the 9 till 3, um, whatever, whatever the hours are. But, you know, I've, I've always leaned into trying to just get as much on the ground done as I can and try not to bring too much of it um, at home, at least for the last five years of feeling like I'm, I've been having a better work-life balance. That's kind of my philosophy. Obviously, there's always times where you have to bring it home. But, you know, when you've got those hours either side now of another little person who needs lots of love and care and attention and, and you want to give that, it's not as simple as that anymore. Not to mention in the new role, having the, you know, the, the expectations that middle managers have, and, and rightly so. The, the extra meetings and the extra time that you need to dedicate to that role to ensure that you're doing a good job and managing people well, it's not easy to marry that with having, having a, ch- a small child. So I suppose the first thing that I, I kind of had to let go of 
was I had to let go of the person that I was before I was now having these restrictions on my time. And the way I did that was I was really proud of how upfront and candid I was with a lot of the people that I work with in terms of this is what I can give. I'm going to do my best. Uh, this is what I can't do anymore. <laughs> and um, and it's, that sounds really simple, but they're not simple and easy conversations to have. And you have to feel psychologically safe enough to actually say that to your colleagues, to your boss, to your you know, people that might also be relying on you at work. Like that's, that is a hard conversation to have uh, and you don't know how it's going to be received either. Well, that's right. And, you know, I am exceptionally lucky that there are a number of administration members at our work that have small children and really, I guess, get it. And I know that that doesn't always happen in other people's workplaces but, you know, there's still going to be that expectation that you are delivering outcomes and that you are doing a good job, of course, and, and you have that of yourself. So you don't want to let anyone down in that sense. But I knew that I had to let go of my own personal expectations around what it meant to do a good job before Tommy as to what it meant to do a good job while Tommy is in this stage of life. And this stage of life won't last forever. And that's where the priority needed to be. So I kind of, I had a big hard think about that. And yeah, just kind of, I suppose, communicated that with a few key people that really ended up making me feel quite reassured because they knew that my intention was to do the best job that I could. But also they, they knew where the line was in terms of, okay, so Beck's not going to be able to make, you know, ridiculously early morning meetings or a meeting every afternoon of the week. Do you know what I mean? And, and yeah. that I think I felt really strong and sure of myself in that, which really helped. Yeah. I was going to say, do you know what I think the other benefit to that is that sometimes, although other staff members, you know, who, who are the ones who are the recipient of that kind of news or those kind of boundaries can sometimes feel frustrated by, oh my goodness, you know, we, we can't do it at this time that suits everyone else because that person has some family commitments that are, that are restricting them. The other thing that I've seen happen in situations like that is it can also make the whole team more efficient because no longer now are we having meetings that are going for two and a half hours that could have been 40 minutes or a, me a 40 minute meeting that could have been an email. You know, it actually can also focus the whole team because although theoretically the restrictions are only yours, it does impact the rest of the team and it actually sometimes makes everybody more focused and more prioritised, which is actually a plus in the long run, although it does depend on how it's received, but it still can benefit everybody. Well, it's really funny that you should mention that in terms of boundaries and, and you know, like I think it's it's across, I mean, it's probably Australia-wide, might even be worldwide with teachers. We're not the most efficient meeting, uh, meeting people, uh, meeting workplaces. We need to really clean it up a bit, I think. And one of the things with that was with my team that I managed for the junior school was that I, I knew I wanted to put my money where my mouth was in terms of showing them how you can run a really efficient, good meeting. And that was something that I, I managed to keep going the whole year. And it was, it was as simple as we finish school at 2.30, the meeting starts at 2.45 and it will finish by 3.30. And we didn't sway from that at, from from start of the year to the end of the year. And one of the things that one of them said to me was, "Oh, thank you so much." And she she's a mother as well. 
thank you so much for that because it was always something that I could rely on that that meeting ended on time. And I was like, yeah, it's such a simple thing. But I think that sometimes schools forget that you might have a couple of parents sitting in a meeting going, oh my goodness, looking at their watch going, I'm going to be that guy that has to get up and leave because I have, I have somewhere really important to be. I have to go pick up my child. And no one, I don't think that's acknowledged. I don't think we often kind of think about that when we schedule certain meetings and, and school events. And I think it really helps to have uh, parents in admin roles for that exact reason as well, but because you take it into account. But I also think that just having people being able to rely on the time that the meeting is going to finish, regardless of whether you're about to go and pick up a, a child from daycare or you know school or wherever, that actually is important for everybody because we all have things you know, on our list of things to do and whether or not the thing that needs to happen after the meeting is picking up a child or calling back a parent or some other task or getting to a doctor's appointment or something like that. Like we all have other things. And when we, uh, the thing that I think most people find most frustrating about meetings that we don't know when they're going to finish on time is that you feel a little bit held hostage. Whereas when you can rely on it, you're much better. One, you're going to be a much more engaged meeting participant because you know that you're going to be out on time so that you can go and carry on with whatever it is you've got to get to do to got to get done so from an engagement perspective that's powerful too but it also develops huge amounts of trust with leadership when people sitting in the meeting can actually trust that if the leaders say we finish on time we finish on time therefore if the leaders say something else about what's happening when the, at work or you know with students or whatever it is if the leaders say something else we trust that too and that's so powerful it really is. It really is. I think the other thing that really was something that shaped my journey this year in terms of taking control of, of how my year at school was going to go was um, I went to a PD that um, this speaker got up and said it was a, it was a, you know, it was a wellbeing, I forget which one it was, but it was um, the whole idea was, was wellbeing in schools and education. And um, this principal of a school got up and said um, to the audience of teachers, if anyone comes into his office and says, oh, I'm overworked, um, I have a, a workload that's unsustainable, he said, and whether he does this or not, I don't know, but he said he, he goes into his little drawer and he gets out a mirror and he says, I'm going to show you the person who is in charge of your workload and holds the mirror up to them. And, of course, you, heard, you would hear the gasp of the, crowd, of the audience going, oh, how dare you, you know, say, um, suggest that that's within my control. But I kind of, I really resonated with that in the way that I, I think that there are external factors and we definitely have systemic issues, 100% that affect teachers and, and what, what our expectations are within our roles for sure. Um, that's, that, you know, it's not really an argument about that. But we still have autonomy over how, how we react to that. It's kind of like, you know, that what psychologists tell you, who's, you know, the only person that you need to worry about is yourself and how you react. It's kind of like when you realise that you can take control of it, the only person in charge of my own workload is myself, literally. I'm not in charge of the expectations of other people. That, that's something that's on them. And, but my own expectations of what I'm willing to give is really key. So, so that for me was that, I guess that's what kind of fed into that 
idea of, okay, what's a good enough performance at work for me? And once I kind of laid that out and understood that it was not going to be the same as what it was before, I think, and it still changes. It didn't just stay set the whole year, but I think it, it really allowed me to, I don't know, thrive and, and sometimes exceed my expectation. Oh, well, I, I got that done anyway, you know, because I, I guess I wasn't putting that same pressure or stress on myself that when, you know, when things seem to be going right, you get on a roll with it. And so that kind of what, that's kind of what happened, I think. But it all came down to what I thought of myself. And, and I think that's really big. I think we really, especially in teaching, there is a lot of, oh, perceived judgment and, and sometimes it's, it's not <laughs> unfounded, <laughs> certainly not. And I think if you can kind of shake it off and let it go, then you're going to be in such a better place. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, I love that story about the mirror and I can totally imagine the gasp that would go up in the audience. And because the first time you hear that concept, it is, it does feel like an insult. However, it's actually not, but you have to almost bring down the defense defenses, you know, the ego that wants to keep us safe is putting up all these blocks about how dare you suggest that this is my fault, but it's not the same as victim blaming. And I, and I have to say, I have seen victim blaming in school situations where people do say, you know, well, we did that well-being PD on the first day of, you know, the first student free day of the year. So if you're having a hard time in November, it's your fault. And that's not what we're talking about here. That's a totally separate thing, but it's actually really empowering when you do realize, yeah, there are some external things that are going on. I can't control the curriculum demands. I can't control, as you said, you can't control other people's expectations, but we can always control how we respond. And we also do, as you say, have a fair amount of autonomy. Obviously, at more times, obviously it's different at different times of the, you know, school calendar, but we still have an amount of autonomy over how we uh, carry out that work, when we carry out that work. As you say, you know, you you try very much not to bring things home except when it's absolutely necessary. And I was actually the opposite because I found that having shorter days at school and doing a little bit more on the weekend was actually better for my well-being. But we have the choice to choose. Nobody's forcing either option. It's individual. Exactly. And it's really empowering once you can pull down those defenses, let go of that sense of horror at, at being held that mirror up to you. It's very empowering once you can go, oh, actually, I'm in charge. I have not control over everything, but I have control over all these things. How wonderful. What can I do? What experiments can I run to see what works better? It's really a wonderful thing if you can reframe it that way and embrace it. Absolutely. And I think that you, when you lose that kind of expectation of yourself to do a certain job and you're, but you also combine that with high levels of communication to your team and the people that you work with, you can really set in motion just a really good sense of trust. Like you were talking about before about around what you start to normalize about what can be achieved, you know? And so when it comes to that heavy reporting time, I remembered going up to, you know, our weekly meeting that I said, you know, it's, it's going to be 45 minutes only. I, I'd, I would go and talk to two of the members of the meeting and just be like, how do you think, do you think it's going to be better for us to meet or do you think it's going to be better for us to just knuckle down and get our reports done? And it's, 
I, I don't think I would have done that a couple of years ago. I think I would have bought into that expectation that, no, we have our meeting. There is important stuff that we need to cover. But once you open up that line of communication and, and sometimes they'd shock me and they'd just be like, you know what, I think we need it because we need to talk about these things. I'd be like, great, let's do it if that's going to be the best. But once you start communicating with your managers about what you can achieve and then you open up the communication with the people below you about what they believe that they can achieve, I think that that's just such a, a conducive environment for well-being and trust in the professionalism of teachers. I'm really glad you used that word because I do think, I mean, you know that obviously I'm very, very aware and I do sometimes have to check myself because I tend to, people who reach out to want to talk to me are not having a good time. So I'm aware that there's a bit of a confirmation bias going on with with the perspectives that I hear from teachers who are either in situations in schools that are pretty toxic, perhaps they have a manager who is not open to communication and feedback like that, or perhaps they're, you know, there's other situations going on that are, are very difficult. And uh, I probably hear more stories like that than I hear the ones like yours. But that is why I do the podcast to try and actually share that th- there are other options, you know, and if you're stuck in a school that's, or, or even just even if it's not the school, even if perhaps it's like a year level or a subject or something's going on that's not right for you, there are other options. Like you don't have to stay there in that stuck, horrible place. You can actually maybe make a shift, get a transfer, maybe ask to be put on a different year level. You know, there's a million different things that you could try before you quit and leave the job. But I do also see that there is a place and a time for the whinge, you know, the occupational whinge where we just all get together and have a debrief that's a bit, oh, yeah, we're having a rough time or this sucks, that sucks, it's all crummy. But there's also a time and a place for a professionalism that is actually really proactive about communicating our limits to managers. And it's something that I do try and encourage more and more. And I'm not saying this in any kind of you know, I very much understand the challenges that people can be under. And I've experienced it myself when you're on temporary contract after temporary contract. And you'd feel like if you speak out, you might not have a job next term. You know, I totally, from an absolute experience level, understand the pressures that that job insecurity places on people. But I also know from my own experience and from the research, how important that communication is with leaders. And our leaders in our schools not to say there aren't bad eggs, of course, because there's bad eggs in teachers as well, but our leaders in our schools are really, really trying to manage the expectations from above and below. And if we can be, as teachers, if we can be really proactive, but also as leaders without, you know, with the leaders above the leaders, the next level managers and things, if we can be really proactive about that communication, as you said, Beck open up, keep those lines of communication open. That is one of the most important things that helps boost staff morale, but it also helps us actually figure out what's the right choice in these situations. So a blanket rule about, okay, it's reporting time. We don't have the staff meeting and reporting week. As you've shared, your staff have actually sometimes said that's not helpful. They want the meeting for certain reasons. So when we make blanket one size fits all rules in any situation, it's not helpful And we need to be making sure that those lines of communication are open so that we can actually be responding and being flexible when we need to, to actually do what's best for people this time in this moment, as opposed to, but this is the blanket rule that we think will be better for everybody. And it's not always. 
No, absolutely. It's, it's, it's like how you were saying that you, you found it more beneficial to have your hours shorter and to get some work done at home. And I'm finding, and you know, that, that was me too before Tommy and now it's changed and, and we need that flexibility, you know, within ourselves. Like I think part of probably surviving, <laughs> surviving, thriving is a better word, thriving in teaching is constantly reassessing, reevaluating and making changes to support where you're at in life in your own teaching journey. So the way that you used to work may not work for the situation that you're in now. You may be able to lean in more. You may have to lean out a little bit, you know. It's really important, yeah, that it's not that blanket rule that this is the type of teacher that I am this is the hours that I must spend on the ground or at home in order to, you know, do X, Y, or Z. It's, it's like, hey, is this working for me right now? What's, you know, you've got to tweak and adjust. And I think that that's going to, again, it's not, it's, it's a pretty simple com- concept that I'm sure others have come up with as well. But I think that putting into, in, it into practice isn't always easy if you're in, if you're in a group or in a rut, <laughs> depending. And it can be really, um, if you've done a lot of work on anything, whether that might be a particular something aspect of the curriculum at school and then that changes or whether it's, oh, my goodness, but I put so much work into building up these habits, these healthy habits and and looking after myself in this way. And now in this new season of life that I'm in, that's not working. There's a grief involved in that. And I think we actually need to acknowledge that and make space for that because that's then where self-compassion can enter and say, yes, it is hard. You are feeling some grief around the fact that you put so much effort and so much work into that. And now it feels like it's all thrown out the window because new curriculum comes in or a new manager comes in or a new baby comes in or a new health condition comes in or whatever it is. And now everything has to shift again. And that's really hard. And and we actually need to make space for that and hold ourselves in that because only in doing that are we able to then step forward and say, right, in this new situation, what are we going to do? Because the old way is not working anymore and the old new way is not working anymore. So now we need a new, new way. Exactly. Mm. Oh, well, I think that's a really beautiful place to wrap up, Beck. Is there anything else you wanted to share? No, not really. I just think that, um, you know, what was working for me back when I spoke to you last in 2017 has, it hasn't completely changed. It's morphed. And like you were saying, it's going to continue to morph as I move through the seasons of my life. So if we check in again in another two years, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see where I'm at. But thanks very much for all the work that you do, Elle. And, and I love following your journey and that you are promoting this concept of teacher wellbeing. And I think it's, I think it's vital to helping teachers thrive in their workplaces. So thank you. Oh, thanks, Beck. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast brought to you by Self-Care for Teachers. If you've enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify, hit the three dots, share it to your Facebook or Instagram stories and let your friends know that you're listening. And if something in this episode made you think about a teacher that you care about and you think they need to hear it, send it to them now. Let's spread the message of teacher well-being and together we can create thriving school communities. Show notes for the podcast can be found at www.selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash podcast. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at selfcareforteachers. 
As always, remember you're a person first and a teacher second and you are worthy of your own care.